Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 275 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. We have this go-around our regular contributor, Vagabond International, Artiste Intellectual, JQ. We discuss running away to France, the rat race, aneurysms, Andy Warhol, the factory, the underground, as well as several other interesting subject areas. We have an EWSA titled Graciously, a piece by Arthur Rimbaud, titled The Drunken Boat, and a poem called Wondering Who Can Tell, Anthony Bourdain. All of this, as is always the case, will be infused with several great tunes. Let's get to it. Episode 275 of Troubadours and Tours. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some loving here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can conquer hate. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love and get here today. Picket lines and picket signs don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see. Bring 
Graciously, we are not high-minded, moralistic patriots, but instead we are fearful, exclusionary opportunists. This fell out of my head one recent morning as I trudged through toward the pantry to get my coffee started on the stove. A treasure trove of insight, if not a gem of wisdom, I initially thought, Later that day, while watching my two younger sons playing a Little League baseball game, the grandfather of another boy playing approached me as I leaned on a low chain-link fence outside right center field with Marquez, my champion-bred chihuahua, at the end of a relatively short leash sitting nearby. He, the grandfather, After a few pleasantries, told me how God, through Jesus, saved him 40 years ago from drinking, drugging, and running around with women. He is now living an eternal life as a temple housing God's will, forgiveness, and love. He asked me if I would accept Jesus into my heart and be saved too. He assured me that God had sent him to speak to me for a reason. That I must need to be saved was the implication I garnered. I politely shared that, though I appreciated the invitation, I was uninterested. The grandfather asked if I was sure. Marquez was unmoved. I felt saved by the baseball game, watching my boys play on a chilly spring night whilst a warm sunset adorned us graciously.
Is this JQ? <laughs> Hello, EW. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Running the rat race here in the United States of America on the verge of a aneurysm, I think. Uh, it's nice to talk with you there in the south of France. Our resident vagabond, ladies and gentlemen, JQ, here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Well, thanks. It's it's great to be back. And why are you on the verge of a breakdown? Is it something specific or just the general tone of American life that's got you? I run, I run around like a rat, thus the rat race, chasing a piece of uh, uh, cheese, I suppose. I'm not sure. <laughs> It's a it's a metaphysical cheese. Yeah, it's a metaphysical cheese. It's ridiculous, and it makes me feel bad about myself, really, uh, how I get sucked into it. But uh, you know, whatever. What are you gonna do? Uh, hopefully, I'll. I can tell you what what I did <laughs> because I felt that way for my entire youth, pretty much before things got the way they are today. And I I ran away to Europe and and bounced around the world with a backpack and ended up in the south of France, hiding out in a farmhouse in the countryside. I might come and join you soon. Well, yeah, there's room here, man. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, you got to put up with some, some a loss of some creature comforts, and there's an outhouse and that sort of thing, but I like it. We don't have to share a sleeping bag or a tent like we did years ago, do we? Uh, no, no, no. In <laughs> fact... No, I'll die. I'll sleep in the rain first. <laughs> oh, we never shared a sleeping bag, but we shared a small tent, a pup tent. Basically. We, shared, we shared a tent, yeah. And I, I remember we, we were caught out in a lightning storm. In, yeah. in a, it's, it, we were in a field near a vineyard in the south of France. and, and The Manier. Uh, the Manier. Blinded Manier. by, by Man lightning strike. The Manier vineyard. Yeah, that, that's the one. That's uh, That's maybe an hour from where I am. Right now, not even. But, uh, yeah, we, we were almost blinded by a lightning strike. I don't know if you remember that. I, of course I remember that. It was awesome. You held me and whimpered. <laughs> I held you. <laughs> but anyhow. Because you were rolling around on the ground screaming, I'm blind, I'm blind, I can't see, I'm blind. So. <laughs> uh, yeah. Boy, a lot of fiction here. You, we're, 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 we're really spinning a nice uh, yarn this, this go-around on, uh, on the program. I know we wanted to talk a little bit about some people that uh, compelled us when we were younger lads in the 80s, in particular uh, Andy Warhol. Uh, he's yeah. also a native of Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, well, all right. This, this, is, this was your idea. I mean, you just sort of sent me uh, uh, an article you'd read. Uh, you sent me a link to, to a thing about Warhol just sort of proposing an idea. I, I gotta admit, I didn't. I didn't even read it. Um, but I can talk about Warhol if you want. I I've got a very sort of intensely ambivalent relationship with Andy Warhol. Uh, well, actually, I don't have any relationship with him. He's dead. But uh, mixed feelings about him. Let's say. Okay. Well, the article basically, since you didn't read it, it was about uh, <laughs> his his diarist and good friend, um, who I think her name was Patricia Hackett who uh, Andy had given, Mr. Warhol had given a lot of photographs that he had taken. He was a huge, uh, he was almost a compulsive uh, photo taker. Uh, and in the 80s, most of these came from, like, of uh, Jean Basquiat and um, uh, people like uh, Grace Jones and Jerry Hall and, and, and the like. And uh, sure. she, she put a show on of, of a lot of these photographs at a gallery uh, in New York City 
within the last month or so. It might be still going on. And that's what this article's about, and they show a lot of the photographs, and and uh, it's pretty neat. Back in the 80s. Yeah, no, no doubt, and, and that's that's the, the latter-day Warhol crowd, you know, of the 80s, but... But notice that it's again. It's it's all about the personalities and about the, the 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 celebrity, and the fame. You know that 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 surrounds him. I, Warhol has always represented like a, a serious turning point in our, in our cultural history for me. Um, uh, a major turning point in the arts and the role of the artist. And I, I still haven't worked out if it's a positive or a negative change. You know, but he's a, he's a fascinating guy because he's the first real sort of megastar pop artist in, in the modern sense. And he's both of those. He's he's a real artist and he's a pop star. You know, he starts out seeming like this brilliant visionary critic of capitalism and mass production, right? You know, the soup cans that everybody knows, right? And so in the beginning, some of the more radical-minded members of the cultural elite loved him because they thought he was on their side, that he was, right in the beginning, that he was secretly this sort of anti-capitalist revolutionary so social critic but it became very quickly apparent he wasn't that at all he actually found beauty in mass production and in a way beauty in the dehumanization that comes along with it which is all it's horrendously unromantic right and it's a compelling vision at the same time because you know he's simply pointing it out um so anyway soon enough he sets up the factory which is phase two and that name was very deliberate, the factory, you know, the, the first one was called the Silver Factory, but that the factory was going to be mass production of, of Warholian art. And he quickly proves to be very celebrity obsessed and fame and status obsessed. So he's both sort of like the most vulgar commercial tabloid style type of pop artist you can imagine. And he's sort of the godfather of the modern artistic underground at the same time, right? So put a pin in that term underground, by the way, because that's a, that's very important to how I feel about Warhol, but we'll, we'll come back to it. Anyway, like he, he's not really much of a painter and he makes awful, boring films, but it doesn't matter much. He's super compelling. He's the most forward looking visionary guy around on, on many levels, you know, and he just says things that are brilliant. Like in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes, you know, which it's hard to deny was prophetic in a cryptic sort of way. Right. Yeah, definitely. And, yeah, and at the same time, he, he creates – well, he doesn't create. He, he discovers and, and promotes the Velvet Underground, which is basically Brilliant. like saying – Brilliant. Brilliant, man. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, which, in other words, uh, Andy Warhol, in that sense, he helped to give birth to punk rock. And you know how I feel. I mean, Lou Reed, to me, and Joe Strummer, those are – they're on my Mount Rushmore as a songwriter, you know. So Warhol is this like hugely complicated figure for me. You sent me the, the link uh, and I immediately just started thinking about what I've always thought about Warhol. He was the center of this, like the, 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 the major artistic underground of, of his time. And the underground is supposed to be, you know, when we, you say the word underground, it, you think it means this anti-commercial aesthetic or artistic force of novelty and real creativity. And yet Warhol was proudly and ruthlessly commercial-minded, as much so as one can imagine. I don't know. Like, he could have only appeared on the scene when he did, like in those post-war years as capitalism began its victory dance on our culture and communism started, started you know, it would take quite a while, but it was crumbling. It was obviously, obviously 
it was clear enough that we were winning the Cold War, I think, to a lot of people. And during that whole period, something happens to the artist and the role of the artist. And it, it has, and Warhol's sort of at the center of it. Something like happened to the very notion of how we see the artist and what a creative artist is for in our culture. And I don't know how to put this, but it's as though Warhol, he sort of drilled a hole in the wall that divided the non-commercial sort of underground, you know, the, the marginal, the arts world and the hyper commercial world of celebrity and glitz, because that's what the factory was. It was, it was the underground, but it was the most fashionable thing in, in going in the country. If you see what I mean. Oh my God. Does that mean he started what has become reality TV? Okay. Maybe you, you could, you can see a connection, right? Yeah. And that's, that's well observed. And it means a lot of things, you know, uh, I mean, in a way, I see it as very good because he was very smart and I appreciate the way he could play with preconceptions and destroy pretension, you know, a bit like before I'm Duchamp, uh, putting, uh, submitting a urinal to a, a, uh, an arts um, exhibit, an art exhibit and saying, well, here's your art and, you know. Or, or a Coke bottle rack or, or the, the kind of thing. Or Picasso. That goes back to Picasso's banana bicycle seat and handlebars. Yeah, exactly. So there were, there were prototypes, you know, but they were still most certainly artists more in the European mold of the artist as a serious cultural figure. And there was something, even when they were sort of sociable people, there was something monkish about them, you know, and, and Warhol blows all that up. But in another way, I, I think the whole thing is sort of disastrous because – Warhol sort of invades the realm of, of cultural creativity with an army of shallow posers and talentless phonies. I mean, there, there was a lot of that, that that came out of, like you said, you know, you, you could think of him as, in a way as the godfather of reality television. In a way, you could say it, it's like he conquered the wild continent of creativity where he came from. And sort of handed it over to the commercialized establishment of pop culture and, and Hollywood, and which has run it as a colony ever since. But but isn't that our, our lives? Isn't that the way it always goes? You might have, you do have, brilliant visionaries, and once for for some reason, some freak of chance, uh, the masses get a sense of the energy and the brilliance. They co-opt it and beat the hell out of it and make it something that is, you know, bland and overproduced and overdone. Isn't that well, what we do over and over well, again? Yeah, I think I think what you're getting at there it's 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 sort of the curse of the the great success of our civilization post World War II and in America and you know triumphant capitalism. Well, yeah, um, yeah, it is. It is that. Because it wasn't like that before. We've come to think of that. It's, it's almost banal, you know, like look what happened to rap music. One day it comes out and it's very exciting and there's this public enemy and there's all the, you know, and it's, it's, it's new and it's, and it's, it's radical and, and it's got something to say and it's coming up out of the streets. And then the next day it seems we're selling toothpaste with it. Well, right? yeah, but the, the real good stuff is still out there. It's just not really. Exactly. It's been it's been commercialized. A new genre has been has replaced the good stuff. The good stuff's still out there. Matter of fact, this gives me an opportunity to plug one of my uh, colleagues on uh, one of the stations that broadcasts our show. Uh, we're broadcast on Radio Free Brooklyn, and immediately after the broadcast of our show, Troubadours and Rock on Tours. 
comes a great, they, he calls it, uh, I th- believe it's Hip Hop Descent, and it's called Proper Propaganda with Ennis Domenis as the uh, the host. It's fantastic hip-hop, but not the kind of stuff that, you know, has become mainstream for sure. All right, well, I'll, I'll have to check that out. You should. Yeah. Uh, all right, but all right, let's, let's, let's take a more oblique path back into this um, because what you're talking about when you say the good stuff's still out there, and, and I absolutely agree with it. There's, you know, the, the creativity is always out there. So, Let's say the underground is always out there, but with Warhol and from that time, more and more, we lose our capacity to even bother going to look for it in a way. But let, let, let's take, take another angle, okay? This, a lot of this has to do with um, hierarchies and uh, how in our modern free societies, we are actually completely overwhelmed by hierarchies. You were talking about your aneurysm and always being busy. Maybe that's related to it, but I bring up hierarchy because, okay, according to the the proponents of biological evolution, which which have been gaining more and more influence for the, over the last few decades, right? So the, the social scientists, the clinical and behaviorist psychologists, and according to biological evolution, our civilization, and really any civilization, is basically an interlocking network of dominance hierarchies. Okay, so hierarchies, they exist even when we don't see them or look for them, and we're always participating in them whether we know it or not. So, you know, like every human organization, whether it's like a volunteer club, a school board, or a corporation, it's a hierarchy. I mean, if you tomorrow went out and formed an anarchist group with a bunch of like-minded people, you would find that eventually a hierarchy of influence would form within that group, right? It can't be avoided. Um, so hierarchies are everywhere. I mean, everywhere. We're, we're still tribal creatures in many ways, seeking our place in what they, the scientists, the social scientists call a dominance hierarchy. Um, and even in our interpersonal relationships, that's there. We're always sending and receiving signals related to dominance. We do it with our partners and with our kids, and they do it with us. Okay, what does this have to do with artists or Warhol? All right. I bring that up because the role of the artists in the West has an, a very precise, unique place and has pretty much since the Enlightenment and, you know, the slow collapse of religious faith that begins with the Enlightenment and runs through the Industrial Revolution and right down to our time. Um, in the West, the artist for a long time became a sort of stand-in for the, the spiritual figure, the, the rough equivalent of like a, a shaman for a tr- an ancient tribe because the shaman is the one member of the tribe who lives outside of the tribal hierarchy because he communicates with the the spirit realm right so if you think of the role of great artists and philosophers from the the history of europe for instance um rambeau nietzsche van gogh okay they're like shaman they they're they're communicating with some other realm they bring their wisdom and knowledge back from that realm to the rest of the tribe which is to say to us through their works right so the creative types the creative personality type in, in our modern societies is the rough equivalent of the shaman for ancient tribal societies. They're free of the tribal hierarchy, or in our case, the network of hierarchies that form our societies. So in the 20th century, this is when we start to use this term, the underground, to come back to that, to describe this sort of space where the creative types congregate. The people who are the marginals, they're you know out there in the wilderness, outside of the social structure. 
you know, there's like the main today, there's the mainstream where things are more or less codified and stable, but also stagnant, right? And then there's the underground where things are wild and new and unexpected and where change happens. And by association, where the secret to the future transformations of our society can be found. You follow me there? Totally follow you, yes. Good. Okay, so in literature and painting and music, like in every artistic domain, there's an underground. And I like the term because it, it seems to me to refer to something that would be like the Jungian collective unconscious, you know, the, the subterranean part of the collective mind where the myths and monsters and gods and demons live. In other words, where real creativity can be found. Because it, I, it, also, it also reminds me of during wartime, if you're uh, a country that, that is um, sort of been taken by another country, uh, you have the underground who is who's trying to break the influence of that occupier. Bingo. The underground becomes really crucial when up above, where things are visible, authoritarian powers reign. Uh, or a foreign power, but yeah. Either, yeah. Uh, and psychologically, if you think of that metaphorically, that works as well. I mean, basically, you can think of the underground, the place that, where the artist is supposed to live or go to. It's like a dragon's cave. You know, ideas and expression, they're dangerous. It's new and it's dangerous, but there's treasure in it. So it's like a dragon's cave because you go there to get that treasure, but you could just as well die. So in terms of the art, the artistic, the creative personality type, let's say, the dragon could be madness, addiction, neurosis, uh, poverty. poverty and isolation, obscurity, certainly, and a tendency toward utter dis- disorganization. It takes a thousand forms. The dragon is a hydra, right? Now, today, instead of the artist, you know, with all the advances we've made in psychology, we actually speak of the, the creative personality type. You and I have had this conversation, I think. We now know that this is an actual thing, you know, because of things like the big five personality indicator, right? And like I only learned within the last decade or so, 15 years, that I I have taken these modern psychology metrics, these tests that tell you who you, you know, that give you a sort of template for your, your character and your personality. And in the big five test, which is probably the most well the most widely distributed uh, and most uh, respected by scientists um, and the most used in the category among the five categories that where that scores for creativity, which is uh, it's called openness. I scored a hundred. I, I got a perfect score on it. Right. Which does not mean that you have uh, that you're better than anybody. It's not a score that you well you in, want in, in your mind. It means that. Obviously, I know I'm better than other people. That's not what we're talking about, though. In real, back in reality, outside of my mind, it doesn't mean that at all. It it just indicates something about your character and the way you think. Right. So we, fact, we talked about this. Yeah, we. I remember last yeah. last go around. You are listening to Troubadours and Rock on Tours with E. W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Right. So the creative personality type, it's a type. And what a high score and openness actually means is that you're psychologically, you tend toward what is called lateral thinking, which is basically uh, metaphorical thinking or like the ability to associate things that don't necessarily go together. Right. So in other words, you're sort of gifted or you have a tendency to automatically go to abstract and conceptual thought. Okay. But that also means you'll probably have a weakness in more practical thought. And other 
aspects of intelligence that can be very, very useful. Right? That, yeah, that lateral thinking there, that abstract thinking and such, will not get you the CEO position of a major company, nor will it get you the presidency or the governor's office. You know, that doesn't Dude, work. There. You won't. You won't be able to get promoted at the local Wendy's because you're, you're, you're yeah. going to have problems with authority and paying attention and and all the things that have plagued me through my through my life. Although not that bad, I've I've had it good. You know. I, for me, when I took this, it, it explained a lot of things to me. It was very late in life, but it sort of it showed why my values were what they are and why I behaved the way I did in certain situations. And basically, in a way, they're the values of what what we were talking about—the underground. Yeah, well, okay. are we connected still? Are we still talking in some way yes. about Warhol? Think of Andy Warhol, the underground. All right, I'll give you a personal anecdote. Right, um, but first, the 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 underground. Um, it's once it became a place that you could name as it was happening, it stopped being the underground. Of course. And I date that to Andy Warhol. Okay. Because all of a sudden everybody's going there and it's the place to be. And it's actually very fashionable and it's thought of as the underground, but it wasn't the underground is once you can name it and say, Oh, these people are in the artistic underground or that it, that's not the underground anymore. It's, it's not an actual place or an actual movement because once it is, then it's codified, then it takes its place in the hierarchy, right? So right. to give you an idea of what I mean by that and why Warhol is sort of signals the death of that, you remember I left America a long time ago and – Oh, we had a parade. Th- I remember. Yeah, everybody celebrated. He's gone. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> there was something I talked about a lot back in the day that I noticed within the first like year or two or three that I was in Europe and it was that – when I was in America and people would always say, what do you do? Right. And, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a writer or I'm a poet, I'm a songwriter, whatever the artist has to say. The follow-up question was always some version of, uh, uh, where do you publish? You know, what galleries are you exposing? And like who it was always right to the bottom line, some coach way of figuring out how much respect I owe you, right. how much, what's your level of success? What's your right. place in the hierarchy? Right. When I came to Europe, that same question, what do you do, which is, can be innocent enough, followed up by, oh, I'm a songwriter, I'm a poet, I'm a writer. This, the, the, the follow-up to that was, oh, what's your work about? Perfect. Okay. The content. What drives you? What's your muse? Stuff like because, that. Because, yeah, here in Europe at that time, there was still, because we're going back 25 years, right? There was still that sort of instinctive understanding that the underground is a place is a thing that serves a purpose and that it doesn't exist anywhere. It can be anywhere. It's, it's carried by individuals that are like that. Fellow right? travelers. Yes, and that it has a value to the society because that's where the future transformation comes from. So if you think of like the creative types of the past or, or now, okay, the overwhelming majority of creative personality types and artists, they're never going to succeed socially, economically, or in, it, in any way. They're doomed to obscurity. They're going to deal with mental illness and addiction and <laughs> bad habits. And if you think of the guys I named, who, who did I, I said Nietzsche and uh, Van Gogh. And I said Rimbaud, right? Okay, all three of them. They all died in obscurity. All of them. Okay, only one in a million actually succeeds. And ever since Warhol... And, you know, Warhol's not to blame for this. It's, really, it's much bigger than him. But it, I associate him with it because you really see it starting in full force with him. The one in a million that succeeds with the society at large becomes the focus of everything and gets, you know, 
TV documentaries and everybody, we're all about the winner and that's participation in the hierarchy and we don't have that underground anymore, That the respect for that place that is outside of it. If you're outside of it, what you are is a loser now, right? In Europe too? It's becoming more and more like that here and I've noticed it. It's a slow it's, – it's not a collapse. It's like this slow erosion of, of that and I think for the collective psyche, that is a massively unhealthy thing. We've lost knowledge of the automatic, the intuitive respect for what what I'm, we're calling in this conversation the underground, right? That marginal, that wilderness, that creative wilderness. And Warhol, he's not the guy who destroyed all that. I mean, th- like it's like my dad was shot by a firing squad and Warhol was the gardener that like cleared out the field where it happened. It's not his fault. He was, he was a fine gardener, but he was there. And anytime I see the dude... <laughs> all of that comes to me. There's a lot that comes with Warhol as much as I admire him that is extremely problematic for me. That has to do with, uh, you know, what I see as a, a big part of our cultural decline that is happening at the same time that technologically and economically we advance. And I don't know how to feel about it. So you think it had something to do with the technological uh advances too or are you no, giving, you're, no, giving, no, you're not giving him credit for that no 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 that that's a completely separate issue i i'm saying there's a cultural at the same time that i am really happy to live in the time i live in there's all these advances that are amazing right but it's more of a technocratic age culturally we're in decline yes but as a civil as a society and as a civilization our power continues to grow and our our affluence uh and and our living standard so but it's a very strange thing. It is, but because without a solid, dynamic culture, how long can you last? That's the thing. Isn't that the first sign that things are actually way more dangerous even than we think? You know, there's there's a part of the psyche that is not being nourished that is absolutely necessary. Yeah. It, well, it goes back. I mean, just to put it in simple terms, how um, we are we have the ability to consume more than ever many of us and more of us as time goes on it seems across the planet but how much can you consume and how much is there to consume if that's all you're doing is consuming and you're not you're not producing you're not you're not reflecting you're not you know evolving uh, in in deeper ways and right know. yeah and the sense of community is 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 frittered away and you were talking about being on the verge of an aneurysm at the beginning of the conversation simply because you're running around so much we're less at peace with oh, yeah. all this comfort with all this comfort, we have less time and we're less at peace. And so it's, there's something – the anxiety levels and the fact that everybody's taking pills of one form or another, you know, uh, and opioids and, and, and all of these things and, and Xanax. And we're not dealing well with the society we've constructed for ourselves. And a big part of that for somebody like me – is this cultural aspect where we're we're not nourished in our in our creativity? The, the underground is not a. It's still out there. You know. Hello. I'm here. Oh, okay, I, I heard some interference. It's still out there. It's just, well, like you said, the talent is still out there. The artists are still out there, but they don't seem to have any impact on the society anymore. And the ones that do have an impact have it more as celebrities than as artists, than as as cultural forces. As spiritual forces. That's a great way of putting it. By the way, folks, we're talking with JQ, our resident vagabond intellectual artiste here at Troubadours <laughs> and Rock on Tours from the south of France. 
And, uh, you know, we've we've had a really great conversation. We're just about done with time this go-around, uh, JQ. Right. Do you have, uh, you have any closing thoughts? Uh, I know we're going to play one of your tunes soon. And you have any other uh, information to share with the throngs of listeners? Oh, well, I just, uh, I, we've been talking about the underground the whole time. That's, that's where I live and it's where I thrive. So if, if people want to find my music, I'm on iTunes. Uh, you look it up under the name JQ Public or on YouTube. Uh, I'm putting out free, uh, some songs that I've recorded. Uh, I spent a lot of time in studio, as you know, and, and playing all the instruments and writing and arranging these songs. And just I've been putting out lyric videos uh, with no promotion, you know, the way I usually do things. I just sort of make it and then I put it out haphazardly for free somewhere or, you know, whatever. And then I move on to the next project. But, uh, yeah, so look that up or if, if you like the song that EW is about to play. Uh, aside from that, a plug for myself, which is not something I'm very good at. No, I don't really have any closing thoughts. We've covered so much ground here. <laughs> we have. It's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking with you, JQ. And uh, um, we'll do it again in several weeks. I'm happy to say you are a regular contributor to the program. And uh, that's my honor. Yeah, you, you keep keep it real, as they say. And uh, you know, uh, I guess that's corny, but uh, you know, you, I love the way you think. I love the way you're living. And um, uh, you know, it, it infuses me, it inspires me, and I think it is doing that for the listeners as well. So thank you. Thank you, my brother. It's, it's, a, it's an honor to be a part of your show. I love what you do, man. Ciao. Later. Full of fear. It's clear that your believers have begun to see your pain fools go. Lies and compromise, the pretty glitter in your eyes. Reading palms and begging arms, we had them hypnotized. Your colored scars and tarot cards revealed the stars revealed the soul.
torches of the mind Stories for their fortunes They're sure that they've been right The tea leaves hold no mystery now It's time to flee, I don't know how It came to this, our separate ways No part and kiss, just split the tick Too late, you see, I've left you Hold only fools hold The Drunken Boat by Arthur Rimbaud Translated by Wallace Fowley As I was going down in passive rivers, I no longer felt myself guided by haulers. Yelping redskins had taken them as targets and had nailed them naked to colored stakes. I was indifferent to all crews, the bearer of Flemish wheat or English cottons, When with my haulers this uproar stopped, the rivers let me go where I wanted. Into the furious lashing of the tides, more heedless than children's brains, the other winter I ran, and loosened peninsulas have not undergone a more triumphant hubbub. The storm blessed my sea vigils. Lighter than a cork I danced on the waves, that are called eternal rollers of victims. Ten nights without missing the stupid eye of the lighthouses. Sweeter than the flesh of hard apples is to children, the green water penetrated my hull of fur and washed me of spots of blue wine and vomit, scattering rudder and grappling hook. And from then on I bathed in the poem of the sea, infused with stars and lactescent, devouring the azure verses, where, like a pale elated piece of flotsam, a pensive drowned figure sometimes sinks, where, suddenly dying the blueness, delirium and slow rhythms under the streaking of daylight, stronger than alcohol, vaster than our lyres, the bitter redness of love ferments. I know the skies bursting with lightning and the water spouts and the surf and the currents. I know the evening and dawn as exalted as a flock of doves and at times I have seen what man thought he saw. I have seen the low sun spotted with mystic horrors lighting up with long violet clots resembling actors of very ancient dramas, the waves rolling far off, their quivering of shudders. I have dreamed of the green night with dazzled snows, a kiss slowly rising to the eyes of the sea, the circulation of unknown saps, and the yellow and blue awakening of singing phosphorus. I follow during pregnant months the swell like hysterical cows, in its assault on the reefs, without dreaming that the luminous feet of the Marys could constrain the snout of the wheezing oceans. I struck against, you know, unbelievable Floridas, mingling with flowers, panthers' eyes, and human skin, rainbows stretched like bridal reins under the horizon of the seas to greenish herds, I have seen enormous swamps ferment, 
fish traps where a whole leviathan rots in the rushes. Avalanches of water in the midst of a calm and the distances cataracting toward the abyss. Glaciers, suns of silver, nacreous waves, skies of embers, hideous strands at the end of brown gulfs where giant serpents devoured by bedbugs fall down from gnarled trees with black scent. I should have liked to show children those sunfish of the blue wave, the fish of gold, the singing fish. Foams of flowers rocked my drifting, and ineffable winds winged me at times. At times a martyr weary of poles and zones, the sea, whose sob created my gentle roll, brought up to me her dark flowers with yellow suckers, and I remained like a woman on her knees, resembling an island tossing on my side, the quarrels and droppings of noisy birds with yellow eyes, and I sailed on, when through my fragile ropes drowned men sank backward to sleep. Now I, a boat lost in the foliage of caves, thrown by the storm into the birdless air, I, whose water-drunk carcass would not have been rescued by the monitors and the Hanseatic sailboats, free, smoking, topped with violet fog, I, who pierced the reddening sky like a wall, bearing delicious jam for good poets, lichens of sunlight and mucus of azure, who ran, spotted with small electric moons, a wild plank, escorted by black seahorses, when Julys beat down with blows of cudgels the ultramarine skies with burning funnels. I, who trembled, hearing at fifty leagues off the moaning of the behemoths in heat and the thick maelstroms, eternal spinner of the blue immobility, I miss Europe with its ancient parapets. I have seen the sidereal archipelagos and islands whose delicious skies are open to the sea-wanderer. Is it in these bottomless nights that you sleep and exile yourself, million golden birds, O future vigor? But in truth, I have wept too much. Dawns are heartbreaking. Every moon is atrocious, and every sun bitter. Acrid love has swollen me with intoxicating torpor. Oh, let my keel burst. Oh, let me go into the sea. If I want a water of Europe, it is the black, cold puddle where in the sweet-smelling twilight a squatting child, full of sadness, releases a boat as fragile as a May butterfly. No longer can I Bathed in your languor, O waves, follow in the wake of the cotton boats, nor cross through the pride of flags and flames, nor swim under the terrible eyes of prison ships. There's a new sensation, a fabulous.
tell. Anthony Bourdain. Everything is a joke. Everything is a drama. I should be on Dramamine. I somewhat long for the days of Obama. And the nights are longer. The days are as well. My human ways and means all along here and over there in my mind fill a big screen and draw from the wellspring of my existence. Torn from a tether Brandishing the weather, I teem, I gleam, I stream, wondering who can tell.
And there you have it, episode 275 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. Our regular contributor and resident vagabond, JQ. Writer, Arthur Rimbaud. And these musical artists, Stefan Grappelli, Django Reinhardt, Marvin Gaye, The Brian Jonestown Massacre, JQ Public, Roxy Music, and the Rolling Stones, as well as Terence Blanchard and Bramford Marsalis, too. Until next week, enjoy this one. Thanks for listening.